Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. podcast and this podcast is a continuation of the series on the Paris Peace Conference uh, in 1919. The um, thing I find interesting uh, about the conference, one of the many things, is the fact that whilst the likes of Wilson, Clemenceau and Lloyd George were and their various uh, con- uh, their various delegations were drawing up uh, new national boundaries uh, across Europe. The process of nation uh, formation uh, successor states to the uh, Austro-Hungarian, Russian, German and Ottoman empires was continuing apace um, and uh, happening on the ground. Revolutions, uh, foundations of nation-states, foundings of nation-states uh, and uh, wars were being fought during the period of the Paris Peace Conference. And actually, the pace of events moves faster than the conference itself is capable of actually going. And so uh, the realpolitik, really, of the Paris Peace Conference is a very interesting and perhaps slightly um, overlooked aspect of the entire process. Normally, when you open a textbook on the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles, normally the first bit in any textbook on Nazi Germany, the impression you get is that um, the three, the big three, and um, obviously Italy and Japan, but both of those peel away, but the big three uh, make decisions and the rest of the world abides by them. Well, it is sort of true and sort of not. Because, as as mentioned, the uh, struggle for national unification in Poland, for example, owes in many ways more to Germany than it does to the the conference itself. It was the uh, German, uh, the the Kaiserreich, that had instituted a kind of a a puppet state in Poland following the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And this was the foundation of a a new Polish state. Of course, along with the struggles of uh, Polish nationalists such as Paderewski and the Polish national movement. 
So by the time the Supreme Council had first met on the 12th of January, Poland had been uh, reborn as a nation, Finland and the Baltic states were uh, close to independence, and Czechoslovakia had been appeased together. So these events all happen before there is even a first meeting between Wilson, Clemenceau and Lloyd George. The Balkans um, uh, were another seat of uh, dramatic change. Serbia and the South Slav territories of Croatia and Slovenia had formed into a Yugoslav state, which couldn't have existed without the demise from the 19th, late 19th century onwards uh, of the Ottoman Empire and the destruction of the Austro-Hungarian Empire during the First World War. The uh, Ottoman Empire, the uh, Serbia had once obviously been a Viliat, a, a province of the Ottoman Empire, then became a suzerain um, from the mid-19th century onwards, and um, Slovenia and Croatia had been the territories of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Margaret Macmillan quotes Lloyd George, saying, The task of the Paris treaty makers was not to decide what, in fairness, should be given to the liberated nationalities, but what, in common honesty, should be freed from their clutches when they had overstepped the bounds of self-determination. There's a marvellous anecdote about the difference between the pontifications of the uh, delegates at the conference and the facts on the ground in Eastern Europe. You see those little holes, a local asked an American visitor to Lvov, on the disputed borders between Russia and Poland. We call them here Wilson's points. They've been ma uh, made with machine guns. The big gaps have been made with hand grenades. We are now engaged in self-determination and God knows what and when the end will be. So instead of seeing the Paris Peace Conference as the place where uh, Poland was created, Poland was created by Polish people, by struggle within Poland. Uh, the very first issues that the Paris Peace Conference deal with when it comes to Poland isn't ratifying its existence, but dealing with uh, fighting between Poland and its neighbours. And fighting was ongoing by 1920, obviously when Poland uh, defeated the Red Army at the gates of Warsaw. One interesting um, similarity between the end of the First World War and the end of the Second World War, which we, there is no um, final treaty with Germany at the end of the Second World War, um, there's no Treaty of Versailles. Um, there are several conferences, obviously, at Yalta and Potsdam. But in both instances, the idea that Europe is at peace in 1918-1919 or Europe is at peace in 1945, is, is untrue. There's terrific uh, inter-ethnic violence in uh, every, nearly every country in Western and Eastern Europe in 1945. And there is an immense amount of uh, inter-ethnic violence in uh, mainly Eastern Europe in 1918-1919. The difference between the two is that the uh, end of European empires, particularly the German, Austro-Hungarian and uh, Russian in 1919, had seen the, the re-emergence of nation-states like Poland, 
whereas the process is different in 1945, as we see the beginnings of the development of the Iron Curtain. But what we must be confident about is the idea that fighting was not over in Europe in 1919 and wouldn't be for some considerable amount of time to come. And the fact that we properly assume it, it is um, shows that a real kind of conceit within uh, First World War historiography. There are not many books uh, popularly available that address this issue. I know there is one title coming out, so I've kind of got my eye on. Um, but popularly, we look at the, the Western Front as being the First World War. This is a very Anglo-centric point of view. And when I say we, I know there are many of my listeners around the world that don't share this view, so I'm, I'm not talking to you. I'm you know, particularly failure of imagination over Anglo-centric um, historiography. We see the Western Front as uh, having you know, the guns falling silent uh, in November 1918 and uh, the uh, Paris Peace Conference as being uh, an event that happens in the aftermath. Well, the war was ongoing and the uh, war in Europe evolved from a struggle between empires to um, ethnic violence, the wars that normally accompany the establishment of nation-states, and the uh, fight over resources and boundaries uh, that normally accompany these sorts of processes. Tasker Bliss, the uh, American military advisor, wrote to his wife in Paris saying that he believed there would be another three decades of fighting in Europe. Um, he was slightly out with those predictions, but not wildly. He wrote, The submerged nations uh, are coming to the surface, uh, and as soon as they appear, they fly at somebody's throat. They're like mosquitoes, vicious from the moment of their birth. American diplomats and military attaches who were perhaps unfamiliar with European history and European conflict would no doubt have been surprised by the fact that at the end of the most bloody war in human history, that there was seemingly an ending appetite for further conflict in Europe. In fact, there seemed to be almost nothing that could prevent further conflict in Europe when the issue of national self-determination was raised. Now, in order to understand this, you know, you need to really go very deeply into uh, the origins and theory of nationalism, far, far deeper than we can go today. But as I always recommend, get Benedict Anderson's uh, Imagined Communities. One of the questions that Benedict Anderson sets himself is that is how people, how and why people respond so passionately to these strange concepts we invent for ourselves called nations. What is it about the nation that will have uh, individuals fight and kill uh, and devote such energies? He goes, has a, a vastly illuminating thesis in the book. I won't spoil it here, but it's well worth getting your hands on. One interesting difference between uh, 1919 and 1945 was the power that the victorious powers had in both uh, periods to actually reshape Europe. In 1945, the power to decide the futures of um, everywhere from Poland to Greece is far greater than that possessed in 1919. The um, 
this level of destruction of Germany, the outright defeat of Germany, was far, far greater in uh, 1945, obviously. Um, unconditional surrender and the full military occupation of Germany uh, was a, a possibility then. And it meant that the uh, countries liberated from Nazi Germany by uh, both sides, by the Western and by the um, Soviet Union, Westerners and the Soviet Union, uh, had the, the scope to be uh, to have their borders changed, uh, particularly in the case of Poland, in a way that wasn't possible in uh, 1919. The establishment of Poland by a national insurrection meant that they, they, the kind of the facts on the ground weighed and mattered an awful lot more um, than they did in 1945. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Some of the rewriting of boundaries, particularly in the case of Turkey, uh, is, is violently overthrown in the immediate aftermath of the uh, Paris Peace Conference in the, the few years following it. And such an event in the uh, aftermath of the Second World War, where there are millions of Soviet soldiers in Europe and the Americans have uh, a monopoly on the atomic bomb, would have been almost unthinkable, the idea that uh, anyone dare uh, challenge or overthrow the post-war order, at least for the first um, decade or so, was really uh, highly unlikely indeed. And as I pointed out in the, the previous uh, podcast I've done on the Paris Peace Conference, 
the ability of the British, the Americans and the Soviets to plan out a world order uh, long before the defeat of Nazi Germany meant that there were, in essence, fewer surprises for either side. The abruptness of the end of the First World War, so the uh, long struggle against the Central Powers and the final rapid collapse, meant that the uh, peacemakers were taken, in essence, rather by surprise, and had to go about the process of um, peacemaking, of nation-building, of the reconstruction of Europe, or the attempted reconstruction of Europe, uh, from scratch, with very little um, formal idea of what they wanted or how they wanted to go about it. And certainly, very little understanding of how competing claims between themselves and also the contradictory ambitions of various um, states within Europe from a country, disgruntled combatants like Italy uh, to pariah states like Germany and the Soviet Union to new nations like uh, Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Um, this, this kind of uh, chaos uh, was very difficult to manage, particularly as it was largely unanticipated. Peacemakers were unaware of the limitations, the practical limitations, to their own power. There were a large number of delegates at the conference who thought that this was an opportunity for um, a grand reconciliation of peoples in Europe and around the world, that uh, wrongs could be set right. Uh, but the fact that uh, there were so many completing claims on uh, morality and on the, the rights and wrongs of nations meant that this was uh, highly unlikely. And the conference becomes a, a forum for all sorts of largely unwelcome and uninvited colonial subjects who, in their view, mapped onto it all sorts of meanings that the Allied powers had not intended. Um, when Ho Chi Minh was working as a kitchen assistant in the Ritz in Paris, he sent a petition acting essentially as a de facto ambassador to um, colonise Vietnam, um, asking for independence. Um, the, the fact that this was considered so trivial and uh, was considered so far away from the main topic of uh, the, the conference uh, was made clear when he didn't receive any kind of response at all. Ordinary Parisians would have been forgiven for thinking that the whole purpose of the conference was to punish Germany, not to decide questions such as Vietnamese independence. This seemed preposterous. There were, however, uh, many thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands, of Chinese people who viewed the Paris Peace Conference in an entirely different light. The Chinese had not participated militarily in the First World War, not to any great extent anyway. It supplied uh, labourers for the Western Front. And so the cheering in the streets when the uh, armistice was uh, announced 
and when the uh, conference began, might have been something of a, a mystery to Western onlookers. What is it possibly that the Chinese could find interesting about something that seemed to be a wholly European affair? Well, in their view, the perspective that they had on it, or the um, wish that they projected onto the kind of empty slate of the conference, was that it would be a, a, a moment of international uh, reconciliation and a moment whereby Europeans would decide to do the right thing, uh, where justice would be done by China and things such as treaty ports and extraterritoriality for Europeans on Chinese territory and the unequal treaties inflicted on China from the 1840s onwards. These would be undone and China would have its independence. This was the uh, view that um, many Chinese people had. However, as we will find out, or as you may well know, the uh, Japanese who had been uh, allies to the British and the Allied powers during the First World War, they get first say on uh, what happens with China, particularly what happens with the Shandong Peninsula. Uh, the British were very awkward about China's offer of assistance um, to the Western Allies during the war. Um, the White House, in a kind of rather patronising way, um, thanks China for its, its kind offer of uh, half a million troops to the Western Front, but turns them down anyway, uh, assuming that this will be a ploy to get concessions, and already there was going to be some kind of awkward horse trading with Japan. Woodrow Wilson was keen to get Japan on board for the League of Nations and knew that uh, perhaps granting them some sort of rights in China would be just the medicine for that. The conference attracts not only delegates from uh, the, around the world, but also not only delegates, I beg your pardon, from nation-states or from uh, colonised nations looking for their independence, but also from sectional interests. Um, with female suffrage societies uh, met in Paris, um, and Millicent Fawcett from the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies in Great Britain Lucy represented the movement in Paris and became something of a kind of a focal figure. Wilson was not entirely um, opposed to the movement for uh, female suffrage and had sympathies for the cause. He did what American presidents tend to do, uh, met with delegations and spoke in very general terms about uh, how good it would be for the rights of women and the vote to be enhanced, but left himself free of any meaningful um, commitment and uh, suggested that uh, a special commission should be set up um, and that this would have women, me female members and it would look into the um, issues for women. Uh, Wilson uh, mentioned this to Arthur Balfour who had sympathies for the uh, British um, suffrage movement. Um, the French um, thought yes there should be something done about female um, suffrage the Italians poured more cold water on the issue, saying, well, it's more of a domestic matter and for something for individual nation-states to deal with. And the Japanese said, really, well, this is nothing to do with the Paris Peace Conference. Uh, and whilst we recognise the contribution of women to the world, it's a kind of a, a sideshow. It's not what we're here to achieve. Now, as old empires collapsed and the Allied powers suddenly found themselves responsible for, in some ways rather, unexpected parts of the world, 
quickly finding local elites and politicians who seem promising, um, who were rose to prominence in these new successor states, was quite a difficult task. If this was not done quickly, um, chaos would rule in large parts of Eastern Europe and the Middle East, and the chances of uh, the Bolsheviks being able to expand into these territories or them having other kinds of violent revolutionary um, uprisings was definitely there, i.e. You, you pick the strongman or one will emerge not of your choosing. The uh, local uh, occupying armies uh, in Europe and the Middle East were, were very often the only glue that held societies together. Um, the quick thinking and lateral thinking of uh, allied officers was uh, very often essential in getting um, communications, infrastructure, trade, healthcare and other basic aspects of life going again in war-shattered parts of the world. Uh, in Belgrade, a British admiral put together a small flotilla of barges and moved them up and down the Danube, uh, moving food and raw materials, which again brought about a, a vitally needed uh, rejuvenation of markets and trade, which made sure that people didn't starve. There's always an interesting parallel between that and, say, uh, the era of war communism in Russia, which was emerging at about the same time, where uh, any kind of trade was shut down, almost guaranteeing famine. John Maynard Keynes, in his book uh, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, led a stinging indictment of the peacemakers at Paris, saying that the most important thing of rejuvenating and resurrecting world trade, that hadn't happened, and this was a great oversight on part of the Allied powers. Um, the responsibilities for the peacemakers were enormous. The European and world economy was, uh, was in chaos, and the amounts of debt that had been accrued to fight the war uh, were vast working out how to repay the debt and how to um, uh, keep the kind of the flow of repayments from Germany to the Allied powers in terms of reparations and from uh, Britain and France to America in terms of the servicing of war loads was going to prove a major and ultimately insurmountable headache. Anyway, I'm going to finish this podcast here um, because there's an awful lot more on this subject to say. We'll look a bit more later in the week on the chaos that Europe faces. Uh, in 1919 and then we'll look on we'll move on to uh, examining Russia um, thanks very much for listening I'll catch you on the next podcast and thanks very much everyone who's been engaged in the conversation we've had over the weekend on the subject of hate speech all the best and bye-bye even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.